Hi everyone, and welcome to our podcast in Good Company. I'm Nikola Tangen, the CEO of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, and today I've just had the most interesting conversation of my life with Bill Gates. Stay tuned. So, Bill Gates, um, warm welcome to uh, Chile, Oslo. Well, it's great to be here. What do you um, What do you want to achieve in Oslo? Well, Norway's been a partner of the Gates Foundation, particularly in global health work. Um, back uh, in the year 2000, uh, we and others co-founded the Gavi Alliance for Vaccines. We've worked together on the Global Fund. Uh, Norway's uh, generous and thoughtful, so we end up working together to uplift the poor countries quite a bit. Mm. Well, Gavi has been a tremendous success, right? Absolutely. vaccinated a billion kids. Yeah, so the deaths per year of children under five at the turn of the century was over 10 million. And now uh, it's below 5 million. And the vaccines uh, that Gavi uh, has been able to get out to poor children uh, is the majority of why we've been able to cut that death rate. Uh, We'd like to cut it even more. Uh, It's about a 5% uh, death rate. In rich countries, it's 1%. Uh, So our goal is to to get to 1%. Mm. We'll come back to the, um, uh, to the health uh, aspects uh, or what you're doing. But you, you recently talked about the triple threat of um, energy, food, and health. Now, um, what is the role of the government in addressing these challenges? Well, government, uh, you know, people count on government to think ahead uh, for things like climate or uh, pandemics, you know, earthquakes, uh, to have equity, to have a strong social safety net. Uh, and, you know, the helping the entire world, you know, treating all children as lives of, as having value is, you know, some, some governments uh, prioritize that. Sadly, with the price of energy going up, that uh, hurts fertilizer, which hurts food, which hurts health. And so, although the suffering in Ukraine itself is extreme, uh, there'll also be a lot of suffering in the poor countries, just the knock-on effects uh, of all those costs. And, you know, uh, aid budgets will be strained uh, because of the need to support Ukraine. Mm. Now, what's the role of corporations? Uh, well, this is a, a famous topic. You know, corporations, of course, have some deep expertise. And uh, competing in the market, you know, making their products more effective is... Uh, a big goal, treating their employees well, helping with their communities. Uh, the best companies also have a sense of purpose in terms of where their expertise, uh, whether it's you know food or uh, medicines, you know how they can help uh, reduce inequity. The degree to which that's a priority, you know, a lot of a lot of good discussion. Uh, <laughs> now we are, as you know, um, a financial investor. What's the role for us? Where do we come in? Well, that's, uh, you know, are there ways of both by not investing in certain companies or by working with the managements of the companies you invest in uh, to get them to think ahead, uh, both to anticipate things that will affect their business and to be uh, more of a positive change agent? And, you know, I've certainly seen uh, some examples of that, uh, you know, that are, 
are quite effective. Some people would take it so far as to say that, you know, if a company's doing anything like greenhouse gas emissions, you shouldn't invest in those. And that, to me, is a uh, potentially a problem because then uh, nobody's working with those companies to help them make the transition. Yeah, but we are very much on the same page as you there. We remain owners and try to help the companies through this uh, transition. Now, you say in one of your books that uh, if you really want to change things, you should run for office. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever thought about it? No, personally, uh, that wouldn't be a fit for me. I love the job I have. I, you know, I'm not term limited. uh, And, uh, you know, I can pursue, uh, you know, long-term goals like HIV vaccine or, you know, understanding malnutrition and, and solving that. Uh, so I work a lot with governments, the entire foundation, um, you know, and European governments in Norway are uh, very generous. So we end up partnering uh, to solve the big issues. Talking about big issues and kicking off on the climate side, um, you say that climate change is the hardest challenge we as a species has ever faced. Now, why, why is it so difficult? Well, the energy intensification of the economy uh, that starts with the Industrial Revolution is, you know, it's a phenomenally positive development. And, you know, we could make steel, we could make cement, we could make paper and chemicals, we could move around, we could just flick a switch and lights would turn on. Uh, that modern economy... Uh, the physical economy at its heart is based on the use of hydrocarbons, oil, natural gas, coal. And so we're asking the world to make this shift away from those in the remaining 27 years between now and 2050. And so nothing that radical, that scale uh, has ever been done. And yet, you know, appropriately, we've taken that as this ambitious goal because uh, to the degree we fail to do that, the weather uh, is going to get worse and worse. It's a lot of ecosystems will collapse. A lot of uh, poor people will have their lives deeply affected. So, you know, it's a very important goal, but it we shouldn't underestimate uh, how difficult it will be. Mm. Now, when you look at that, what kind of renewable energy source will be the most important here, you think? We're certainly going to have a mix of uh, energy production. And so we ought to move at full speed to adopt solar as fast as we can, onshore wind as fast as we can, offshore wind as fast as we can. Hydro, there's a few more places we can add, but not that many. Uh, There's kind of a wild card for both nuclear fission and fusion you know, will the economics be good? Will the safety be good? Can you cite it appropriately? So I think we ought to invest uh, in both of those to see if it can be part of the solution. Uh, but we're not moving as fast on any of these as we really should. And how can we speed it up? Well, to get to 2050, every country has to have this green grid. And you're going to be using a lot more electricity because the energy you used to get from the gasoline uh, to power your cars. That's now electricity. The uh, natural gas you would have used to heat your home, uh, in many cases, that will be electricity. So we have to double the electric grid while making it green. 
and keeping it reliable uh, at the same time. And so it's it's very daunting. Um, a lot of countries are are not permitting uh, building these and building the transmission that goes with them as quickly uh, as they need to to be consistent with the goals that we've set. Mm. Now, you have a better view into the future here than most people in terms of innovations and the technological developments. Now, what are you most hopeful for? Yeah, in 2015, when the Paris Accords were signed, uh, the resources going into innovation were very low. Governments had not increased their energy R&D budgets. Uh, Very little venture capital was going into green companies because they'd tried that a few times and it hadn't gone well for them. And so one of the the side themes in Paris uh, called Mission Innovation was to get governments to commit to more R&D. And I committed uh, as the host uh, to create Breakthrough Energy with lots of venture-type funding. Uh, That's now resulted in over 100 uh, new clean uh, energy startups Mm -hmm. that cover every area of emissions. So we've got cement, steel, food, planes, boats, uh, you name it. And hopefully enough of those will be successful uh, to make being green actually quite economic. Uh, the, The term I use to refer to the price difference between a clean product and the current dirty product, I call that the green premium. And for something like cement, uh, the green premium's over 100%. For uh, aviation fuel, it's over 100%. Uh, If we innovate to get that green premium to be very small, ideally zero or even negative, uh, then the adoption on a global basis, not just rich countries, but also middle-income countries, uh, will happen pretty naturally. But today, uh, in many areas, those green premiums are so high that the rich countries really have to drive innovation. Mm. Now, I appreciate you're an optimist, and I love optimists. (laughs) And you have this wonderfully optimistic tone in your books as well. But is net zero in 2050 actually realistic? I think it'll be extremely difficult. So, you know, they talk about a 1.5 degree goal. I, I, I'm afraid uh, that's not realistic at this point. Even two degrees uh, would require everything to go perfectly. Uh, sadly, you know, since we set those goals, we had a pandemic. Uh, we have the war in Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to say, will there be smooth sailing thereafter between now and 2050? But the key point is that the innovations I see uh, will bring these costs down dramatically. And so I'm a huge optimist that we will get to net zero, even if if we miss it uh, by uh, some number of years. I really believe that if we focus on innovation and scale up and we get the cooperation around that we need, uh, we'll come very close to getting to net zero in 2050. Okay. How important is the Inflation Reduction Act? Uh, there's it's huge, a, right? Yes, it's a very important uh, piece of legislation because there's 369 billion of resources in there uh, for clean energy projects. For example, there's a, a credit for people who make green hydrogen that's very generous and it's going to get a lot of people trying out techniques and get the scale up. What we need to see is the same sort of price reduction that we've had 
with uh, solar power and onshore wind, we need to see that in all these other categories. Green hydrogen is still about four times more expensive than it needs to be to be used as a substitute in industrial processes like steelmaking. And so I think that the tax credits in that bill uh, are going to drive massive activities, including these um, innovative small companies partnering with big companies to scale the stuff up and therefore uh, get the cost down. How instrumental were you in getting through this? Well, I certainly was a proponent, and I uh, I know Senator Manchin, so I was you know, talking with him. Uh, but the credit really goes to the top leaders in the Congress, people like Senator Schumer, Senator Manchin. My Breakthrough Energy Group has a lot of expertise. So as they were talking about different policies, we gave input. But uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't take credit for it, but I'm making sure all of my clean energy companies are going full speed ahead to take full advantage of uh, the acceleration it provides. So all those um, American subsidies, where does it leave um, the Europeans? I mean, for instance, Norwegian battery factories and so on? Well, I'm disappointed that the IRA distorts somewhat trade in cars and components for cars. Certainly as between Europe and the U.S., we should have, I personally think we should have free trade in everything having to do with cars. That competition is good for both regions. And uh, I hope this thing can be refined so it's not distorting anything about the electric car market. When it comes to things like green hydrogen, you know, that's there is essentially no market for green hydrogen today. And so the idea that for the next decade, the bootstrap uh, European governments will fund some projects in Europe, the U.S. Uh, will fund some, I think that's healthy. It'll create a market, and then we won't need the tax credit. Uh, sometimes tax credits don't go away when they should, but in this case, I think for the, the next 10 years, having that there is great for the entire world. Now, moving on to, to health. What are the global health priorities going forward? Well, the basic metric um, that we focus on is this uh, child to death, and then we research, okay, is it malaria? Is it diarrhea? If we improve their nutrition, you know, we treat lives as having equal value. And so anything where more kids are dying in poor countries uh, means that uh, it's an unjust world. And fortunately, without, you know, massive resources, you can help invent new vaccines. You can, uh, through partnerships like Gavi, get those vaccines out. Um, so I'm stunned at how successful our global health work has been. And, you know, the pandemic uh, was a setback. Um, you know, now aid money is going to be pretty tight as long as the war is on. But overall, it's a an incredible story. You know, huge heroes in the field, huge great scientists behind all of that work. So you look at where you can save the most lives per, per dollar, basically. Exactly. And infectious disease has been the, the big area. We uh, are saving lives for less than $1,000 per life saved. Mm. If you can't measure it, would you not invest in it? Uh, for instance, mental health, not so easy to measure. Well, it's great. There's a lot of great work going on in mental health. For many things that you have the condition in rich countries, the key thing our foundation would do is see 
the advances in the rich countries and see if we can make them inexpensive. So, for example, gene therapy is super expensive today, but we're working to make it inexpensive so we can use gene therapy to cure diseases like sickle cell disease, which is mostly in Africa, or even to cure HIV. Uh, but uh, we watch the rich world because our resources, you know, compared to the overall healthcare market, are minuscule. Mm. Now, what's the best way to strengthen primary healthcare around the world? Yes, primary healthcare is the key. Most people in low-income countries never meet a doctor their whole life. You know, they're born with a hopefully a skilled attendant, but not a doctor. And primary healthcare is where the vaccines go out, the malaria medicines go out. Now we're using it uh, for even things like HIV and TB. And and so we do a lot of work to strengthen primary health care. Mm. Now you say that innovation is your hammer and that you try to use it on every nail you see. So what are what are the nails you're seeing here? What are the innovations that you think will save the most lives in the next five to 10 years? Well, early on, it was getting more vaccines for diarrheal disease and getting them to the, the kids in these poor countries. You know, ironically, the kids in rich countries were getting this rotavirus vaccine where their risk of death was very low, and but it wasn't getting uh, to the kids who needed it the most. And so helping new M vaccines to be invented and then helping to get their price down dramatically that's been a key role for the foundation. Uh, now we're really investigating malnutrition. Uh, we think we're getting to the bottom of why some kids, their their brains and their bodies don't fully develop. Uh, partly we're going to have to give mothers uh, better nutrition during pregnancy. Uh, partly kids, even at a young age, we're going to have to get uh, better nutrition to them. The scientific understanding is microbiome and how it gets dysregulated and you get inflammation in the gut uh, is very promising to give us low-cost interventions to dramatically reduce malnutrition. Mm, mm. In your in your book about the pandemic, uh, you lay out how it can be prevented, right, and what we should be doing. Yet um, not much is happening, right? How, how, how come? It's just like, it's a drop in the ocean. It's not very expensive, the things you mentioned, and yet... It's just not happening. I'm a little surprised that we don't strengthen the global institutions, particularly WHO, to have a, a group that is helping countries practice their pandemic response, like you practice a fire response or earthquake response, or you know, even your military does war games to make sure they're ready. We need that for pandemics uh, because... If you can stop an outbreak before it goes global, you know, in this case, you would have saved $10 trillion to the economy and so much, uh, 20 million deaths and all sorts of problems with education and depression and so, government debts that we're going to be working our way out of for a long, long time. And so... So what does it cost to put these things in place to uh, prevent it? To do the things at, at the global level... Uh, would be, you know, maybe a billion a year. And so it's wow. the cost really isn't what's holding us back. We need to get a consensus. Um, maybe if the Ukraine war hadn't come along, we'd have that. Uh, so it's a little slower than I expect. But, you know, as, as I wrote the book uh, to try and make the case for that, I attend uh, conferences. I'll go to the Munich Security Conference and talk about this. So I do think uh, that... I think the world will come together around that because the cost, 
in absolute or compared to something like climate change is tiny. Yeah. yeah I mean, you mentioned the security conference. How, how worried are you about bioterrorism? I think if there's anything that's underestimated as a future threat, it's bioterrorism. And it's so daunting. I don't like, you know, to have people feel like I'm exaggerating that. But it's it's a serious risk. And everything you need to do to prepare for a natural epidemic is a subset of what you need to do to be ready uh, in case in the future there was a, a bioterrorist attack. So I hope that the rich world governments really get together and, and focus some of their spending on on dealing with that. What does the worst case bioterror attack look like? Well, if, you know, say smallpox, which has been fully eradicated, uh, if somehow that was recreated, you know, the death rate from that is 50 times higher than it was from COVID. So it's, you know, it's so mind-blowingly tragic that uh, you, you, it's good to take precautions. Moving, uh, moving tack a bit here, um, technology. Now, when we last met in California, you mentioned that you were still reviewing Microsoft products before they were launched. And uh, I just think that sounds fantastic. Now, why are you doing that? Because it's fun? or uh... Yes, it's, it is fun. Uh, Satya Nadella, the CEO, does a great job, and he engages me in reviewing the products. That helps me see how we can use the latest digital technology for the work of the Gates Foundation, and hopefully I can encourage the developers to head in the right direction. You know, more recently, a lot of that has been taking this AI work and saying, okay, how do we shape that as a powerful tool? Now, what do you think about the new technologies you're seeing? I'm quite impressed that these AI technologies are showing an ability to read and write. Uh, Heretofore, a computer could regurgitate the text of a book, but if you gave it like a, a test, did it really understand the information? It it wouldn't be good. And what we're starting to see with these large language models, uh, including ChatGPT, is some ability uh, to read and therefore to write. Uh, There's a lot of work to be done to make them uh, increasingly more accurate, more customized, uh, but uh, it's a pretty profound advance uh, that'll be a tool in many, many professions to make people far more efficient. Mm. Now, it seems like complexity is doubling every six months here in these models. What's the end game? Where is this going to end? Well, if, if you have a, you know, the ability to help white-collar workers you know, by looking through complex documents, uh, you know, whether it's a contract or a lawsuit or a drug application, um, the implications for productivity are pretty significant. In one of the early applications, instead of when you do search, just getting a bunch of links, you'll be able to have a dialogue, say, okay, I'm taking my family degrees, here's how old my kids are, here's how much I can spend. And you're going back and forth and refining uh, it. And so it's like talking to a person who's very knowledgeable. Uh, So, you know, certainly in the search pace, it's a very a far better experience than anything that, that we've had to date. Are you worried about any aspects of it? Technology always has a downside. You know, hydrocarbons, sadly, we didn't realize at first, uh, but now, you know, we understand that. 
digitization, you know, our social network spreading bad things and what should the rules be around that. Uh, so it's pretty rare that you have something new that doesn't have some downside. Uh, just the disruption of, okay, what does that mean for job training? You have people worried about essays that kids uh, write. You know, they'll be able to cheat and have the computer do it for them. And the, and it's great. People are debating uh, these issues. I think overall the benefit will be net positive, but I do not pretend it. Uh, uh, there's not a lot of care that we're going to have to exercise, particularly in areas like health, where we have a labor shortage even in rich countries. So if you could make doctors more effective, help them with their paperwork, help them find different things, help them track uh, what's going on with their patients, that could be good. But uh, we'll, we'll have to be just like the driving application. You know, the, the accuracy is going to have to be super high. And we don't have that yet. No. What's going to be the next technology after AI? AI is, is the one that I've been thinking about my whole life and wondering, okay, how hard is it? How are we going to get this? Until the last year or so, I'd say it was going a little slower than I expected. But now um, it's actually surprised me uh, that we have this acceleration. You know, there are things like nuclear fusion to have super cheap energy uh, you know, someday uh, electricity could be phenomenally uh, cheap, and that would be great uh, for society. Someday, you know, we'll understand the brain uh, and health well enough that, uh, you know, even tough things like Alzheimer's will be able to cure. So we have a lot of frontiers out there, but AI is uh, be the biggest thing in this decade, I would say. Can you see who's going to win it? Um, will there be a winner or will this be fair? No, I'm not sure there will be a winner. I mean, Google has owned all of the search profits. So they will, the search profits in aggregate will be down and their share of it may be down because uh, we're, we've been able to move, Microsoft has been able to move fairly fast on that one. You know, eventually we'll create a personal agent that understands all your communications and what you're reading that can help help you and give advice to you. And in a sense, the personal agent will replace going directly to Amazon or going directly to Siri or going to Outlook or going, you know, so the the fact that Google owns search, Amazon owns shopping, Microsoft owns productivity, Apple owns sort of everything on an Apple device. Once you get this personal agent, it kind of collapses those separate markets into a, hey, I only want one personal agent, and of course it can help me shop and plan and write documents and um, you know work across my devices in, in this rich way. And so a decade from now, we won't think of those businesses as quite as separate because the AI, it'll know you so well that when you're buying gifts, planning trips, and it... it you know, it doesn't care if Amazon has the best price, fine. If somebody else has a better price, um, and you don't even have to think about it. So it's a pretty dramatic potential reshuffling of, of how tech markets look. Right. Now, we have um, geopolitical situations in, in microcompressors, and we have it in AI as well. Do you think the U.S. will come out at the top here? Well, I don't think of technology is being partitioned country by country. I mean, the big tech companies, 
have great engineers all over the world. And, you know, to the degree it's a general tool, you know, typically you just let people compete. The U.S.-China relationship has some aspects where the U.S. is trying to keep technology from getting to China. Uh, mostly so far that's been about chips, the high-performance high chips. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how that'll will play out in AI. I'm, you know, I'm afraid that AI has so many beneficial uses that if you attempt to partition the world, that, that could be very, very difficult. Mm. So if you put this all together, uh, Bill, how, how is your life going to look differently in 10 years' time from a technological point of view? What's the world going to look like? Well, hopefully uh, in every area of emissions uh, for climate, including steel, cement, aviation, food, we will have done reasonable-scale projects to prove out the technology. So in 10 years, I hope that we have green premiums pretty uniformly at zero, and we're just going as fast as we can to build the new cement factories and the, uh, the new industrial economy. Uh, I hope in 10 years, uh, certainly polio eradication ought to be done by them because uh, we've been very close for a long time. Uh, the pandemic was a big setback in that. We won't have cut childhood deaths down all the way to two and a half million, but probably, you know, we will have cut it from five billion to probably three million, assuming there's no more uh, surprising setbacks. And your everyday life in terms uh, of technology and how is it impacting the way you live? Um, you know, I'll probably, you know, be writing birthday cards, making custom pictures using some AI software instead of doing <laughs> a standard card. I'll be writing poems with a little help from the computer. I don't think my life will be dramatically different. I mean, I'm already buying, you know, clean aviation fuel, using electric cars. You know, I spend $9 million a year, you know, to make sure that my footprint is offset in the gold standard, like $400 a ton uh, type way. Um, but I hope some of those things are getting affordable. So everyone's using electric cars and reducing their their emissions. Now, you are the biggest philanthropist um, the world has seen. What are the key learnings that you have made since you started this journey? I've been learning how to work with great scientists. I've been learning, learning how to work with people who are out in the field. Um, you know, learning how to work with governments in uh, the uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, you know, that we, we built up teams of people there and found ways to cooperate. Our work in India has gone particularly well. Uh, you know, there's such a talent pool there that a lot of things we do, uh, we prove them out in India and then we understand, okay, that helps refine them so then they're ready to use in, in the rest of the world. Like digital money, uh, India today has done a really great job on that. And so that, that innovation... Uh, is becoming now available in, in Africa through the, uh, the mobile phone. So, you know, it's a whole new career and a very different set of partners. Even the science, I, you know, I've loved uh, meeting medical experts and having them educate me. So we're investing in uh, uh, high, high impact areas. Um, you know, partnership is key because the scale of the problems is too big, even for a foundation like ours that's, that 
compared to foundations were very big compared to governments or the size of the problems were not that big. When we when we met in California, you explained just how you spend money where you find the most leverage, right? So you tap into existing uh, organizations and so on to get the most kind of bang for the buck. Explain how, how that works and, and, for instance, how you used it in some of your work. Well, I'll give malaria as an example. The normal market doesn't work because the people who get sick and die from malaria have so little money that there's not the normal profit motive to go out and make a vaccine or even uh, bed nets for them. Uh, For a while, the world's militaries worked on that, but then they got prophylactic pills uh, that were good enough, so they they, uh, cut their research. And so philanthropy can come in in places where the market just isn't taking the human benefit into account particularly when it's a what's called a global public good, like a better seed or a better vaccine that we make sure is available to everyone. You know, so the low-cost vaccine manufacturers get access and they can, uh, you know, take it. The generic drug people can take it. And it's just an, an asset for the world. So that's where we've been able to come in and have a big impact. Uh, we also had a goal to improve education in the U.S., uh, which we've had modest success there, not nearly what I'd hoped for. Uh, And that's strange because I thought that would be the easier uh, than the work in global health. So the reality was the opposite of what I expected. Education is not easy to get right. No, it's complicated because you have, you know, the teachers, you know, they, they get to decide, you know, exactly how they do things and designing something that really works for them. Uh, we're, we're still committed to that area, but uh, with even more engagement with, with teachers. Mm. What you have had a lot of luck, though, is, is, uh, is learning. I mean, uh, you are uh, learning new things all the time. What's the key to stay curious the way you are? And what's the kind of, what kind of method do you use when you learn new things? I'm lucky that I, I can set aside time to read. I know that when I get confused... Uh, I have access to people who know uh, all the different fields. Usually I can just send an email and say, oh, no, I, you know, the way this machine learning algorithm works, what is going on here? Or, you know, the immune system, okay, you've got T cells, B cells, what, uh, you know, why aren't these vaccines lasting longer? What is it about uh, duration or infection blocking? Yeah, but, but many people can send emails, but not many people do it the way you do it. Yeah, I'm lucky that I've sort of, I love being a student and I've sort of stayed a student. For a long time, it was narrowly focused on Microsoft work from age like 17 to about 35. I was pretty single focused. Then when I stepped down as the CEO of Microsoft uh, and started the foundation, I broadened my learning uh, quite a bit uh, and became fascinated by, um, you know, what what do kids die from, and uh, why are some vaccines expensive and some cheap? And uh, so, yes, I love to learn. I make sure I set aside a lot of time to read. I get exposed to people who are very good at explaining things. I don't. I try not to fool myself if I really don't understand something. I, I, I say. You know, I don't understand this. Like, you know, the World Bank balance sheet, I didn't understand it. I've had a lot of people come in and help educate me. So now I sort of do. 
Now, the average uh, attention span is 45 seconds. What is your attention span? When I'm reading, I make sure there's no interruption. You know, whether it's, I, some of that I do listening to an audio uh, book at like two times, uh, but I'm really good at, at making sure there's no distraction. And I'm taking notes as I read and then, you know, kind of reviewing, do I understand this? I have to say, the more you learn, the easier it is because things tend to fit together. And so learning new subjects gets easier uh, because knowledge sort of um, connects all the, the things I've, I've, I've learned over the years. What do you read now? I'm reading uh, about the history of blacks in Africa, and it's a book by French called Born into Blackness, and rather stunning history that talks about how the role of Africa and the development of Europe and the modern world has largely been ignored. Very good book. Uh, before that, I read Mukherjee, uh, has a, uh, who's a great health author, is writing about the cell and what we've learned about cells. So I, I read a lot of nonfiction. Uh, what, what do you think is the book that's made the most impact on you? Well, if I recommend a book, it's usually the Stephen Pinker, Better Angels of Our Nature, that really talks about how humanity has improved, that the way we, you know, run systems of justice, the way that we you know, have less violent death, although right now it doesn't seem that way. That book, uh, along with the Hans Rolzing Factfulness books, are the two that I encourage everyone to read. Mm. Now, you, you work so much on health and think so much about these things. Are you, I mean, how do you think about your own legacy? Well, I don't need to have a legacy. You know, if people forget there was a thing called polio, you know, that's a great legacy. You know, the, the consumption in Victorian novels, they'll say, oh, this person got consumption, and that's actually tuberculosis. Well, you know, the people who helped invent drugs made sure that at least in the rich countries, that's no longer a problem. So, you know, I hope infectious disease, the burdens are down so dramatically that as a source of inequity, that's largely solved by the time all the money gets spent. You know, we're, we're looking at spending all over a 25-year period. So very ambitious goals for that time frame. And if you're now uh, looking back to yourself, 20-year-old, what kind of advice would you give yourself? Well, my, as a 20-year-old, I worked day and night, and it was just software. You know, the miracle of the PC and, and later the internet. I didn't understand different working styles, uh, so I missed out on a lot, lot of talented people. I, you know, was in such a hurry. I was pretty brusque about doing things. So my intensity worked very well, but I, I've learned a lot since then about uh, working with, you know, all different types of skill sets, different approaches. And I'm, I'm not so man, maniacal. Is that, I, I mean, is that, is that age that has mellowed you? Because yes. one of the things when I've looked through, you know, when I heard, listened through your interviews and so on, you, you never seem to lose your temper, right? And you have all these kind of strange insinuations and, you know, theories and so on, but you never get angry, right? Well, I've been very lucky. You know, I, my work at Microsoft was super fun. My work at the foundation is very fulfilling. You know, I have three healthy kids that are doing very well. I have, you know, I've had one of the luckiest lives in the world. So even when I've had, you know, kind of negative surprises of projects that, that don't work overall, I have no reason to get angry about anything. I uh, I feel just super blessed. And so 
to the many thousands of young listeners who listen to this, what would be your advice to them? Well, what's worked for me is to be a reader and a learner and be pretty tough on myself about do I understand something or not. And try and be pretty broad. You know, I, I learn a lot of things by studying the history of, okay, you know, what happened in the history of chemistry, what happened in the history of physics, you know, because everybody was completely confused if you go back far enough. And then, you know, various people come along or, you know, like Newton and uh, come up with some general principles. You know, being, you know, having a good background in math and software, I think is a, a very helpful thing, no matter what area you go into. I had great teachers, um, you know, who gave me a sense, okay, you know, if you just try hard enough, you can figure uh, these things out. So, you know, being a constant learner, particularly in an age where the technology is going to be constantly changing. Mm. Well, Bill, um, big thanks for coming to Oslo. Big thanks for being on the podcast. But most importantly, a big thanks for everything you do to the world. Well, great to talk to you. 